Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we're going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, Sean. Marco. What's going on? Uh, I'm in a cave. You're in a, I can tell you're in a cave. Uh, seems like a, co in a, cave. a Cold War type of situation, and uh, right. we may end up talking a little bit about that today. And uh, we're here, it's a special episode, and I'm very excited because we are talking about a book that is very, very relevant, has been relevant for a while, called Manipulated. We have the author here, and we have our friend Ted, which introduced her to Theresa. And uh, Sean, we're, we're talking manipulation, deep fake, politics, and misinformation, a lot of fun stuff. Yep. I think we've, we've touched on a number of these topics individually with a yes. number of guests, and it, it's going to be fun to kind of package them all up together and, and look at how all of it impacts us as a society. And yep. uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a perfect conversation, and I'm, I'm thrilled to meet you, Teresa. Thanks yep. for joining. Yeah, so, thanks for having me here today. Yeah, Ted, welcome. Thank you for having me as a co-host. This is exciting. Yeah, is you are the co-host. Actually, you know what? Because you're the co-host, I'm going to let you introduce Teresa and uh, start things for us. Okay. Yeah, happy <laughs> to do that. So I've, I've been a fan of Teresa for some time. Uh, she can do a better job than I can of introducing herself, but she's the former CIO of the White House, obviously an author, and is a very accomplished professional speaker as well. And how we got here to today was I sent Teresa a message based on some of the content that she was sharing out with the world, which is one thing she's really excellent at, is sharing these insights she's learned and trying to teach people. And I posed this question that said, essentially, do you think that we're better, the same, or worse as we prepare for the 2020 election as compared to what happened in 2016. And her response was, we should do a podcast. <laughs> and so here we are. Here we are, which is what you said to me yeah. when we were talking to catch up and I said, I want to do a, a podcast on uh, technology and democracy. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And you said to me, I got the person for you. Got to do a podcast. You got to do a podcast. <laughs> so Theresa, so here no, we are. No answer. No answer. Just... <laughs> You gotta do something. Doing a podcast and yeah, add a, whatever you like about yourself, and uh, let's just talking about this book. It's uh, yeah, it's no, I'm excited to, talk about. to be here. I mean, I think you know, Ted. I mean, people can look up people's bios, but uh, you know, it's interesting. I started off in the financial services industry and uh, had that opportunity to work for President George W. Bush in the White House, second half of his second term. So if you think about that time frame in technology and even in cybercrime, uh, 2006 to 2008, you know, what was one of the most popular things to hit during those years? It was this, um, not the Mandalorian, the child, 
but this, my <laughs> iPhone. And, uh, you know, that suddenly people had more computing processing power in their pocket in some cases than they did on their desk at work and at home. And so that consumerization of technology and that instant access really opened up a whole lot of transformational doors, not just for business and home, but also for cyber criminals and opportunities for cyber criminals. And what's interesting is, is if you, if you think back to that time frame, I, people may not recall, uh, a lot of people may think about the McCain Palin campaign and McCain, rest in peace, uh, and how Sarah Palin's emails got hacked. So a lot of people focus on that. But what they don't focus on is the fact that China actually hacked into both campaigns, the Obama-Biden campaign and the McCain-Palin campaign. Now, why did they do that? What's really interesting is they didn't do a dump and docs. Uh, they were doing it to figure out which campaign was actually going to be more friendly to China from an economic perspective uh, and an international perspective. So it was more just like, let's just do some surveillance and depending on who the winner is. So it wasn't to meddle. It was to understand and have a game plan depending on who the winner became. Um, and so what's interesting to me is as I've watched uh, the cyber criminal groups and nation states evolve their tactics, techniques, and protocols, their TTPs. Um, and I've seen them kind of, you know, it used to be about for nation states, really political espionage, economic espionage, intellectual property theft. And then when I sort of saw the lines blurring across these different types of syndicates, I thought, you know, there's something here that needs to be discussed, especially with social media becoming more popular. Think, think about it, during the Bush administration, 2006 to 2008, people were still using MySpace. Facebook was still coming out of a college project and Twitter was in its infancy. I know that's hard for people today to like really comprehend. Like my kids are like, what'd you do before Instagram? How'd you, if you when you didn't have Snapchat, how did you keep in touch with people? So that you, know, you think about that mindset, right? And, and so to me, this book has been a passion project that I actually pitched a couple, like more than three years ago to my book agent. And I told her what I wanted to do. And I told her about these manipulation campaigns. And she goes, fascinating, absolutely scary, but no one's going to want to read that book. And so I just persisted. And she kept saying, eh, nobody's going to want to pay money to read that book. And then when the manipulation campaigns happened in 2016 and the Mueller report was, you know, the Mueller investigation, she said, but we're gonna learn, and, and she's a very smart agent, so don't get me wrong, I think she's amazing and brilliant. And if I'd written the book four years ago, nobody would care. Um, and I'd have to do an updated edition. And she was just like, I don't, I, I don't think there's more. And so I just kept at her and giving her different examples of, deep fake videos and different manipulation campaigns and the fact that it's not just Russia. And she said, I think we're onto something, kid. So that sort of became finally the execution of the passion project. Now, I run a company who has 30 people. I have three kids, two great Pyrenees, a husband who works. Uh, so people are like, well, when, when did you write the book? I travel a lot for work. Can't do client work on airplanes and in hotels and on the road um, because you can't take a chance on somebody snooping. So that's when I wrote the book. There you go. But the, 
the inspiration comes way, way before that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I heard one of your YouTube little snippets on the, on the book and you, and you start talking about your grandma that were telling you about, you'll learn who killed the Kennedys. And, uh, <laughs> and there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe where your thinking started. Uh, and, uh, and it got you in this career, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I actually admit uh, publicly for the first time, uh, for people who don't know me, that I'm a conspiracy theorist. So what's <laughs> interesting is, is because uh, we work a lot of incident response uh, cases, and we work missing persons cases pro bono, um, and we, we uh, donate our time to a national center for missing and exploited children. And, and what's interesting is, is I've learned because of my conspiracy theory nature, so I'll like let myself think about what the conspiracy is, and then I'll create at least two opposing hypotheses so that I don't go down a rabbit hole with something that may not be accurate. Um, and so I'm constantly thinking, okay, that seems logical. So what are two other potentially logical but opposite hypotheses that as I'm doing my work, I need to be gathering you know, intelligence and data and analysis around so that I don't fall prey to confirmation bias, which is actually how manipulation campaigns work. You walk into things with a bias and you ignore things that don't confirm that bias and you'll, you're actually willing to believe things that you know is probably not legit, but if it confirms your bias, you have that like, aha, I knew it, you know, kind of thing. So, so yeah, it started really early with, uh, with my Irish Graham, rest in peace. And she would say things to me like, I haven't voted since they killed the Kennedys. And uh, so it was just, just really interesting. Um, I, uh, I have my theories on who killed the Kennedys, but that's like a different podcast. So maybe we'll get to that. In <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious to know what, what inspires you each day? Where, where do you get your information? Where do you seek it out? Does it come to you? And, and how do you think? through some of these things? And is it always looking for conspiracies or, or are you looking to find truth in whatever, regardless of if it's a conspiracy or not? Yeah, I mean, I, what's interesting is, you know, my focus is on really protecting and defending. Uh, and in some cases, you know, if something bad happens to an individual or a company, I do have sort of a, an Avenger mindset. Uh, and so, you know, what kind of motivates me every day is to get up and say, you know, gosh, darn it, if not me, then who? Um, and why not me? And how do I make the world a safer place today based on who I encounter, what problems people ask us, you know, companies ask us to solve or governments ask us to solve. And so I'm always really thinking about like, have we overlooked something here? Have we not turned over a rock? How, how are we thinking about this? Who, who would, who could create terrible uh, situations and damages to this company or this country or this individual just because they have the know-how and the willpower and, and it, they have everything to gain. Um, so it, to me, that wiring, I think, is, is what makes me so passionate about what I do. Uh, and, you know, I'm just kind of this, just like never give up and make sure that um, people are protected and defended. And, you know, companies are made up of people. Government organizations are made up of people. And I like to believe that everybody comes to work really caring about 
the mission. I mean, the paycheck's one thing, it pays the bills, but you know, what motivates everybody to get up and go to work? It's the mission they're supporting and feeling like their gifts and their talents that they're born with, that they're able to apply those um, in the workplace. And so, you know, that, and I'm there to protect and defend them with the gifts that I've been given. Yep. Teresa, for the, uh, the benefit of the readers, could you um, walk through a high level discussion of what a manipulation campaign is, uh, how it works, and then what we should be doing in order to change the situation? Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, and and when when people read the book, I mean, I really do try to do it in a storytelling format. Um, I actually write down some of my like fictional vignettes that are in my head about like where could people go with these terrible capabilities and use, you know, things that are like great and amazing technologies that are put to ill, you know, they're used for poor things. Um, so a couple of things to think about with manipulation campaigns. Um, and I actually write about this because the United States does them too. We call them influence campaigns. Uh, and we justify it because, and I'm, I'm not making a political statement here, but we justify what we have done both overtly and covertly, which is to overthrow repressive regimes. And so we we have our own influence campaigns that we do. Every country participates in them in some form or fashion. But typically a manipulation campaign has a few components. Um, so the first component is it could all be completely true. It doesn't actually have to be false information. So it could purely be an amplification play. So all of the information is true, but we're just gonna make sure you see it, see it, see it, see it. Everywhere you turn, it's going to be there. Uh, so you know, if you think about like guerrilla marketing campaigns, there's some manipulation that goes on in a guerrilla marketing campaign because they want you to take notice and they want you to have an emotion and have a feeling. Is that necessarily bad? No, maybe you needed to drink that Gatorade. I don't know. Maybe you needed those Air Jordan sneakers after watching the ESPN last dance, I, whatever it is, right? So manipulation campaigns are a natural part of our an organic part of our lives at this point. So where it becomes sinister is when it becomes a misinformation campaign or a manipulation campaign uh, that becomes you know, something to get you to take an action that's very divisive. So misinformation campaigns, the way those work, Ted, is you take something that has a kernel of truth and an air of legitimacy, and then you layer into it misinformation and you do it to get people to have an emotion and a reaction that you want. Uh, and then straight up manipulation campaigns could actually be opinions on both sides of an argument that are then manipulated on purpose by fake personas on social media. So those are the three uh, big campaigns uh, that are out there. I always tell people that the way to spot them, and I think um, this may get back to kind of the question you asked me earlier about like, what do you read? I always tell people the way to make sure you don't fall prey to a manipulation campaign. If you don't want to run around your whole life wired to have alternate hypotheses to everything you do, because it, it can be a little exhausting, um, but I'm just wired that way, so I just do it. Um, but if you don't really want to run your life that way, I totally understand that. So what I always say to people is do three things. So if you see something that gives you an emotion, good or bad, it doesn't have to be a negative or a positive emotion, whatever the emotion is, have three different sources that you always check. 
make sure one is local to you that you know and you vet and you trust. Make sure the second one is national to your country, even if you don't agree with their political bias or how they look at things, and then have one that's international. And if you don't see that reported that way, then chances are you're a victim of a manipulation campaign. If you think about it, takes less time to check those three sources than it did for me to explain it. But that can be a really great way to make sure you don't fall prey to confirmation bias, which is really sort of at the heart of most manipulation campaigns. The other thing we need to do is a lot of people feel like, well, this is social media's fault and big tech's fault and government should do more and big tech shouldn't allow it to happen. Guess what? They all want to do more. They can't. They, they literally do not have the right business models and technology models to stop this from happening. So the third component here is us, like it's really up to us. And one of the best things you can do is teach other people how to spot it and report it because Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Snapchat, they're all trying to train their algorithms to do a better, faster job to suppress the manipulation campaigns from freedom of speech. That is not easy to do. Um, so it's really up to us. We're the third component and probably the most important component to stopping manipulation campaigns. Yeah. I would say edu education and Sean and I talked a lot of education all the time. Knowledge is power and now more than ever. As you mentioned in the past, we have many situation that now we describe it in our cybersecurity industry as social engineering, but in the end is advertising, is propaganda, it's uh, what we used to call cultural colonization, which you mentioned the United States were a pretty big champion of that. And, uh, and, and now, and that's probably where I would like to go next, is the role that technology plays into this, because Back in my days, studying political science, they will say, well, read three newspapers, one left, one right, one in the middle, which is very similar to what you said. And now we have so many sources. There are circles of information that auto-confirm themselves, but we also got fake, uh, you know, fake videos, deep fake. We got artificial intelligence. We got bots that are all over the internet. So, What's the game that we're playing now? And I'm sure Ted will love to add something to, to that as well, but uh, how do you cover that in your book? No, you're right. I, so I, I actually walk the reader through, you know, kind of how well-rooted manipulation campaigns are in government and in history. I mean, I, I don't say this in the book, but it's my belief that Manipulation campaigns have been around since uh, two people walk the earth, and uh, you know you can choose which book you want to read that in. But uh, but anyway, so those those stories are interesting, right? Um, but if you kind of fast forward to today, what's different now that wasn't around for centuries was social media. So in the past. If you wanted to conduct a manipulation campaign, like conducting political espionage, let's say, you had to have boots on the grounds. You had to decide what your strategy was going to be. You then deployed your strategy. And then it took a long time to know whether or not your strategy was working. And part of the risk with all of that was uh, your boots on the ground could get caught. Like you could get caught doing what you were doing. And now 
yeah, I mean, some of them still have boots on the ground, but you can decide whether or not your manipulation campaign is working based on how many likes and reposts and retweets you get. And if you decide maybe it's just not trending enough, just go find a really fantastic hashtag, add it to the post, then create AI chatbots, which were designed actually to give us better customer service for routine tasks, right? And help alleviate some of those tedious things that go on in call centers. Well, those AI chatbots can now be used to engage each other on social media, mimicking humans. And then all they have to do is pull real humans in like Sean and Marco and Ted and me. And then the AI chatbots go on and, and go stoke fire somewhere else. And so that's, that's what's different now that we haven't had uh, really the speed of scale to experiment and get a reaction and then tweak what you're doing. Um, this, is, this is new and it's here to stay. It's pretty cool what you were just outlining because in so many ways, what you've just described is the, the fundamental definition of hacking, right? Which is taking something that's supposed to work a certain way mm -hmm. and then make it work a different way. And the chatbot example is an exact description of that. I don't think most people think about hacking like that. They think of some hooded person hunched over a keyboard and some, mm -hmm. somehow access is granted, but it's yeah, actually, mohawk. yeah, well, this was a mohawk too. <laughs> for some of them, not for all of them, just, just the good guys. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting because you're, you, this manipulation you've talked about is exactly, uh, is exactly that. And you mentioned before about how China was hacking into the um, uh, campaigns prior to the most recent one. Can you talk a little bit about any observations or takeaways you learned from that? Yeah, yeah well, we um, have done campaign protection at both, you know, kind of different varying levels of campaigns and they're always a target, always. And I think that's one of the things, if you think about campaigns, they're out raising money and they need the dollars to be spent on ads and travel and getting the word out. And the idea that they have to protect their campaign comms and their donor lists and all of that is just, it's hard for them. Uh, and, but this is the new normal is, oh, you announced you're running for office. Even if it's just like at a small city or county, you are going to be targeted by nation states, cyber criminals and fraudsters because there could be something interesting there. Maybe you're worth um, holding your files for ransom and threatening to dump something. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of financial rewards for cyber criminals and nation states to take advantage of. And you know, that's where a lot of us in the industry have really pushed to say, if somebody's running for office, it shouldn't be like, how many dollars are you going to devote to security? There should be like an out-of-the-box framework that people who run for office you know, they pay some money to like a nonprofit or an FFRDC, a federally funded, you know, uh, organization, and they, they get their campaign in a box and they pay their monthly fee and the, you know, the campaign in a box is in the cloud and it's as secure as just don't share your passwords with multiple people. I, we've got to do something differently here because 
I write about this in my book. I, I don't know how many people recall this, but if I want to kind of give a shout out to France because they did something really incredibly right. Um, so there was a, uh, a hack of the Macron uh, campaign. This is when he was running against Marie Le Pen. And uh, what was interesting was it was a dump and docks campaign. And the French government had said, there's a blackout on media. You can't report on anything, quote, new. Uh, in the 48 hours, I think it is, before people go to the polls. There was a dump and docks campaign and actually deep fake documents, so forgeries were created, accusing Macron of having offshore accounts and accusing him of where does your money come from? And the media did not cover it uh, because of the French rules. And he wouldn't have had time to defend himself and he could have potentially lost that election. Uh, fast forward, an investigation was done and those were all deep fake forgeries. So campaigns everywhere around the world are under attack and believe it or not, um, Russia had a lot to gain if Marie Le Pen had won. So I'm, I'm not casting aspersions on Marie Le Pen. I'm just saying they were very anti-Macron uh, and had a hand uh, in those deep fake forgeries. So is democracy at risk then? Absolutely. Uh, is, there, Absolutely. is there a way out? Uh, and, and is it people, are people the way out or is technology the way out or Has some other be. way? It's in all of the above. Um, so there's a couple of things I really want people to take away from this. And, and I'm going to sound like my Irish Graham for a second, but I mean, they really despise democracy. They despise the idea that the four of us ha would have the power and not government to make decisions, to vote people in or out if we don't like the direction of where we live, whether it's local or national. Okay, so the they. Um, and so everything is under assault. First of all, they want us to think that the system is rigged against us and nobody hears us. So they don't mind if many of us stay home and don't vote. They, as far as uh, all of us who have worked in election security, the ecosystems around the world, there have been no confirmations that a vote that was cast was counted, hacked and counted the wrong way, not the way the voter intended. As a matter of fact, the most recent case of voter fraud is where I live in North Carolina, and it had to do with absentee ballots. Uh, that election had to be rerun again, so we won't talk about that. But um, they really, besides the manipulation campaigns, would like us all to think that the way you cast your vote is maybe not the way it's gonna be counted. And so we have to be on very high alert for those social media manipulation campaigns leading into elections, but also on election night. So for example, poor Iowa during the caucus, like, oh, don't ever launch new technology when so much is at stake. But there was, I could see the chitter chatter going about, well, were they hacked? And, you know, are people's votes counting the way they should be counted? And, you know, just kind of everybody went, you know, kind of DEFCON mode on, on that. They love nothing more than that. So I'm, I'm sounding like my Irish Graham, but there is a collective around the globe who doesn't like democracy. Yeah. And all, all this phenomenon though, it, again, it, you look back and you say that existed from the beginning of the first interaction between human. I mean, I tried to social engineer 
as you do everything. We don't even realize that. That's our way of being social animal and human. And we present ourselves in a certain way in a specific situation. And then we kind of shift on another one because we want to please the other group that we're talking to and so forth. So it's part of who we are. But again, when, when we cannot see the difference between a deep fake and, and, a, and a real one, or when we believe pretty much still that the, 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 heart, the heart is flat or that you refuse science or all of that. The, the only answer that I can see possible to, to save democracy, but to save us is again, is education, is understanding, is knowledge and not just believe everything they, they tell you. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, I think this is what you're doing with this book. I mean, you're trying, this is a book for people to read everyday person. This is not an expert book, right? Yeah, this is not written. You know, there is one uh, chapter that does cover like, well, how does a hacker do their trade craft? And I'm very clear in that chapter to say, this is not a book on how to hack other people. But I, but I do talk in, in sort of business terms around the different tactics and techniques uh, but no, I, I very much wrote each chapter has a little fictional vignette and I really do stay away from kind of the, the geek and nerd terms, uh, which are part of the trade craft. Uh, what I'm trying to do is give people a peek behind the curtain because, you know, I naturally have to study these groups as part of our incident response and our threat hunting efforts that we do on behalf of governments and corporations. And I find them fascinating. I find them scary as well, but I find them fascinating. And I, I just hope, you know, I, I really do believe that this passion project of mine um, is probably one of the most important pieces that I've written to share publicly. And my goal was to make it as informative and engaging, but also like empowering, like, hey, everybody can be a pro at spotting these campaigns. Like it's, it's kind of like a, I, you know, I'm trying to turn everybody into sort of a superhero on how to spot these and to know what to do. And so you mentioned the three, the three pronged uh, detection or analysis uh, method. So your local, your national and international. Are you, are you able to maybe pulling from one of the vignettes or another case, describe something that people can relate to and then check those three things. So we know all of us listening how to walk through that process. Sure. Um, so for example, um, I talk in there about uh, a couple of people in Palm Beach who fell victim to a manipulation campaign, which actually got them to leave their house and take action. And in this particular one, um, they were uh, people that posted their political beliefs. Um, they were very proud about their political beliefs on social media. Um, those political beliefs, uh, including the hashtag MAGA, got the attention of some Russian cyber operatives who actually picked up the phone and called and recruited individuals. Uh, they actually did pay them, uh, sent them a, they said they were Hollywood agents and producing a film. They were UCLA students working with Hollywood to produce a film. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to portray Hillary Clinton being thrown in jail and a sad Bill Clinton watching her in jail and somebody kind of reading her her rights. And they approached three 
just innocent people living their lives in Palm Beach, posting on social media, uh, different posts that had hashtag MAGA and managed to recruit them, send them the scripts, got them to actually build a jail, uh, dress as Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and a sheriff, and go to the Cheesecake Factory in Palm Beach and actually act out this skit. Uh, it wasn't until the Mueller investigation that Mueller was following the money, just like you do in an anti-money laundering case, and followed the Russian money to these three citizens in Palm Beach. Um, the, the interesting thing is, is the people in Palm Beach, uh, one of the main people, the female who played Hillary Clinton, she didn't feel used, she didn't feel manipulated. She said she loved the idea so much, she actually did it again on her own without being paid. Um, so how could they have avoided falling prey to this manipulation campaign using my strategy. So when the UCLA students mentioned that they were doing, and they actually had a website stood up by the way. So it worked, they were like, check out our website. Um, but what they could have done was done a little bit more research around what was in the script, what was being said, um, checked on different things, and then made up a decision, made up their own mind. But that just shows you how sinister these campaigns are. These, these campaigns just don't uh, get people to vote one way or another. They get people to take action or not take action. But also you mentioned that they picked the people that they knew that they were already more receptible than others to their yes. message. And they actually didn't even regret that. So they even reinforced the bias that believe even more and more and more. Yeah. yeah, I actually write a fictional version of how I, you know, kind of in my mind, how I played out how the event may have worked. So the fictional vignette is in there. Wow. Uh, Ted, I like your opinion on representing, you know, the hacking, the good hacking community and technology. And do, do you see a tech solution that can actually help mitigate all of this situation where we agree that is it's people and is technology but what what would be on your opinion the, the tech side of it that can help yeah uh definitely one of the things the themes that is coming out of everything that Teresa is saying here is the idea of how we can weaponize information and how information is also the solution too and so what's happening not just in the election systems, but across basically any industry, but is we're starting to look to technology to help us solve a lot of our problems, whether that's problems around how do we do things better, faster, more efficiently, or more effectively. Um, and the solution to the problem that that introduces, which is of course, now our reliance on technology means that we leave ourselves vulnerable to a different type of attack where a technically savvy attacker might exploit a system. The solution to that is to think like them and to act like them. So Teresa was making this comment earlier about how she's wired in a certain way and it might be taxing for someone else to walk around and see the world the way she sees it. And that really resonated with me because I see the world a certain way too. You know, every, um, anywhere I go, I look at things and I'm like, oh, here's how I would break that. Uh, you know, that's for example, the hacker mentality. <laughs> that's the hacker mentality, right? You know, it's like there was a, before the quarantine, there was this cool bar that opened and there was this really long line and there was a cover charge and I didn't want to do any of those things. 
and so I looked at that system and evaluated how would I defeat this in order to get in. And essentially, I social engineered the uh, VIP hostess to think that I was part of a group that was inside, which I was not part of. And so they escorted me right in VIP. And that's, of course, an attacking a human type story. But that's exactly the way that we need to look at technology is to think about how would an attacker do it? Why would an attacker do it? And then we defend accordingly. And that's, it's really, really important that we do that because there's so much noise in the market today about how to approach security as if it's something that's easy. Um, we all, all four of us travel a lot and we've all been in airports and we've all seen those airport ads that in some way or another say, push this clink, shiny button and whatever this security problem is we're advertising is solved. And it's just not that easy. You need to actually think like and operate like the attacker. And in so many ways, even though what I do and what Teresa does are, are fundamentally, they're, they're different service offerings. At the same time, we're pursuing the same mission, right? Is we're saying we'll be the good guys who think like the bad guys so that this problem can be solved. Yeah, and, and Ted, I'd like to stick with you for a second uh, as we transition back to Teresa on this point. But it's all about information. And I know you're, you're heavily involved in the Internet of Things and, and looking at that whole world. And uh, one big area there is smart homes, smart devices, smart vehicles, things that are connected that learn about us, right? The personal digital assistant that knows what we're buying, what music we like, what news we read. And all of that is information that entities are collecting may or may not be preserving and protecting properly that then could be used to, uh, to conduct some of these campaigns. So first, from your perspective, Ted, how, how do we address some of the challenges with the information that's collected with some of those IT devices in our homes and in our workplace and, and elsewhere? And then Teresa, to you, how, how do we recognize when that information is actually being used against us? Well, that's its own podcast for sure. That one question. Um, <laughs> this is the I, famous last question from Sean. Right. Every time and, we're and about I'll, to then I'll have one more. You open that. another can. <laughs> so, welcome. All right. So I'll, I'll answer that as succinctly as I can. And then I'm, I'm really interested to hear what Teresa has to say. Um, so I think first and foremost, you've already done the first step, which is people need to be aware of the decision that they're making. So when you buy Alexa, or you use Siri or Google Home or whatever, and it's always listening, you are inviting a corporation into your home to listen to what you have to say. Now, that's not a value judgment. Do that if you want, don't do that if you don't want, but that's the decision that you're making. The second thing is an echo of the comment I was making earlier, which is that what we need to do is we need to actually ensure that these devices have suitably been considered the way that someone would attack them, right? We need to look at functionality. How does it work and how would you abuse it? And so a, a good example is in hotels, a lot of hotels are starting to roll these voice activation uh, systems the way they are for consumers, but into a hotel. But the problem is sort of fundamental ethical hacking 101 is if you can touch the device, you pretty much own the device. And so putting a device that anyone can rent the room, touch the device, and now own everyone who stays in that room after, that's a consideration that really needs to be really well thought out. So applying that attacker mindset, that's, that's the key 
to all of this. Um, but what do you think, Teresa? So I actually write a story about how um, nation state operatives hack into a, camp, a major presidential campaign using the baby webcam of one of the political operatives on the campaign. So they see on social media that she just had a baby. They go to look at Babies R Us Amazon, see the baby registry. They see the webcam, baby cam that she registered for. They go to the dark web and they get the default password that comes with all those, with the webcam that she specifically registered for. She's a new mom and working on a presidential campaign. So they figure probably using the out of the box password and um, the rest is history, so to speak, in the fictional vignette. <laughs> so that's what I think about that. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean to me, whenever we have um, very important uh, client conversations at the office, we unplug the Internet of Things devices. We actually have a conference room. So if it's a very important confidential, no devices come in the room. Yeah. It's only paranoia if it's not true. So you may decide, <laughs> wow, she sounds paranoid. And you're welcome to your opinion of me. I'll own that. Um, yeah, it's only but, over uh, the top even, until it isn't. <laughs> yeah, but even at home, like if we're going to talk about going away for the weekend or, you know, something that's like a personal family matter, uh, we have a Google Home that controls nothing because I'm just not there. But you know, we have a Google Home and it plays uh, Ella Fitzgerald to my two great Pyrenees when uh, we're not at the house. And uh, we unplug it. We'll say bye Google. And I, cause I wanna show my three kids uh, that there's on the grid choices and off the grid choices, which is not easy to do because Ted, as you mentioned, I mean, Internet of Things is ubiquitous at this point. I mean, people even forget the technologies sitting there and their smart TV and everything else. And most of them, they don't even know. Like you mentioned Amazon and uh, no, probably people don't know that by default your Amazon wish list is public. Open. <laughs> so we Open. always go, we go on the opposite way, right? Instead of having to opt in, you have to opt out. And that's another thing that got to change. But uh, it's because of this conversation, I think, that we try to reach as many people as we can and tell them to educate themselves. We're never asking people to become hackers or experts in technology or psychology or social psychology manipulation. We just like, I call it common sense and my grandpa used to say it's not that common, which is totally right. <laughs> so, um, Sean, any last question? Or? I, I always have a last question, <laughs> but I'm, I'm actually gonna hope that we'll have another conversation oh, I would love to. and Ted and because there's a lot of things we didn't touch on AI for mm -hmm. example we didn't even dig into yet so oh, yeah. um, I, I will hold the last question that I'd like wonderful to ask at the end. that's I'll you. make you happy today you look at him smiling <laughs> <laughs> if people are listening to the podcast I'm actually yes. very happy no, no it's not true <laughs> they're always smart questions as this was a smart conversation I believe yeah. I think that if we make you think when you listen to this podcast or watch the webcast, we did a decent job. And uh, maybe you'll go, in deep, uh, go a little deeper in this conversation. Yeah. Obviously, read uh, Therese's book because yeah. uh, that would be a good thing to do to educate yourself. And uh, Sean, I, I want to thank uh, with you, Theresa and Ted to be, yeah. make this happen. Yeah. And uh, I really hope that we can have another conversation for sure. I look forward to it. Thank you.
Yeah, my pleasure. This is fun. Yeah, Good stuff. as usual. Good to see you. Goodbye. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and this story made you think, then share ITSP Magazine with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our columns. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.